Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we talked about the Scandinavian discovery and settlement of Iceland. It took the new settlers 60 years to claim all the arable land on the island, and a generation or so to destroy all its forests. In the beginning, there was no political leadership on the island. Norwegian attempts to assert control over the new settlement, as had been done in the case of the Orkney and Shetland Islands, for instance, were rebuffed, quite resolutely, with the killing of Gardar Svavarsson's son, Uni. Maybe the new settlers really were against royal supremacy, and had really set up their new society as a utopia of liberty, personal freedom and sheep farming. Or maybe they just hadn't thought it all through beyond really, really not liking the King of Norway. In any case, once the first fervor of settling the land was over, the Icelanders started to realize that they should probably set up some kind of legal system to regulate affairs and adjudicating conflicts between the colonists. But they still didn't want a king. Today, we'll see how the early Icelanders organized their new emerging society from a legal and political perspective. We'll also try to draw some parallels to what went on in mainland Scandinavia at the same time. Episode 11, Here's the Thing. Before we dive into all the cool bits about constitutional and legal theory and practice in the Viking Age, I would like to point out a few caveats. We have a lot of information about the political and legal system from Viking Age Iceland. Sometimes there's a tendency to look at the Icelandic Commonwealth and extrapolate that this is the way Scandinavians ran their governments in the Viking Age. It's a romantic thought that appeals to the Scandinavian ego. Already a thousand years ago, our forefathers set up a democratic society where everyone had a voice and where everyone was equal before the law. And though it's true that the Icelandic system of government was modeled on Scandinavian systems already in use by the time Iceland was settled, I mean, they didn't invent the wheel after all, it was different in other parts of Scandinavia. It's true that they had assemblies, things as well, but they also had aristocracy and kings. So even though it's probably tempting to see the Icelandic Commonwealth as a standard model of societal organization in Viking Age Scandinavia, I'm afraid that's not based in the sources. More wishful thinking. The second caveat is that we can't really be sure to what extent the, this ideal model described in the sources was ever really applied in Iceland either. Our sources are not contemporary with the establishment of the first assemblies in Iceland. Instead, they were written at a time when the Icelandic system of government was already well on its way to deteriorating into clan warfare and foreign interference. Oh yeah, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for the Icelandic Commonwealth. So what sources do we have? First of all, we have the written law code. But for reasons we'll get into in a minute, this is not a contemporary source. Secondly, we have our old friend, Ari Thorgilsson, that we got to know last time. His Islandiga book also contains some good stuff about how the Icelandic Commonwealth was governed. In addition, several of the Icelandic sagas, such as Njal's saga and the Laxdala saga, paint a vivid picture of the legal system at the time but their accuracy as a source to historical knowledge has been called into question by more than one scholar. For instance, Njal's saga provides detailed description of how the rich and powerful could exploit the intricacies of the law in order to manipulate justice in their favor. 
They obfuscate the law, hiding paragraphs that spoke, spoke against them, stack the courts with their supporters, trick their opponents into using the wrong wording when suing them or suing them in a court with the wrong jurisdiction, thus invalidating their lawsuits and even exposing them to fatal countersuits. The saga gives ample examples of all of this and presents it in a very trustworthy way. The only problem is that toward the end of the saga, it loses a bit of its credibility when it reports that a raiding party anchored off the Isle of Man all of a sudden was pelted with rain consisting of boiling blood. Then the crew members' weapons started to fly and attack them, and in the end a flock of ravens with iron claws descended upon them trying to kill them. You could still argue that events close to the author's re reality in place and time are more likely to be true because otherwise people wouldn't take the saga seriously. The problem with that is that Njal's saga was written several hundred years after the events it claimed to describe, so even if the Icelanders were this corrupt and manipulated by the rich and powerful in the 11th or 12th century, that doesn't mean that this was the case around the year 1000, when the events the saga describes were supposed to have taken place. Anyway, what we do know with some degree of certainty is that the assembly, or the thing, was an important institution in Viking Age Scandinavia. The freemen, no women, slaves or children, mind you, came together and decided on laws and settled disputes. Even though women were not allowed as at the deliberations, there were plenty of them around when the thing got together, because things were also excellent times for commerce and socializing. There was usually a pop-up market when the thing assembled, and you could meet friends and family that lived far away that you only saw when everyone came to the thing. All kinds of deals, including marriages, were sealed when people came together for the thing. You would also hear news and gossip from far, far away. The local things might have ancient roots, and places where things were convened are mentioned on several runestones. But the larger things, where only representatives from local things were present, were established only toward the end of the Viking Age. The thing shouldn't be romanticized like some kind of proto-democratic institution, but it was nonetheless an important forum for the local peasantry to make their voices heard to the leading chieftains and later noblemen in the area. They could make their opinions known about suggested laws and vote on them, even though strong arming and intimidation probably was quite common for the great and the good to get their way at most things. Unlike modern parliaments, the king or his men were allowed to participate in the deliberations at the thing, but they didn't have more voting power than anyone else. As the Scandinavian kingdom solidified, however, the local things lost more and more power and it moved up to the na national thing. To that assembly, only elected members of the local things, not everyone, went. In Norway, there were four regional things, Frostatinget, Gulatinget, Eidsivatinget and Borgartinget. In Denmark, they had three things, in Jutland, Zealand and Scania. Sweden was much more fragmented politically, and as a consequence, there were eight things. Finland was later added as number nine. We find things also in other parts of the world where Scandinavians settled. In Scotland and England, there are a number of places known to have hosted things, and that still carry names that indicate this ancient function. For instance, uh, Dingwall and Tingwall in Scotland, and Thingwall in England. Tynwald, 
The thing on Isle Man was established more or less at the same time as the Althing in Iceland, and Tynwald claims to be the only Scandinavian Viking Age thing that is still convening today as the modern-day parliament of the Isle of Man, albeit in a significantly altered form. But let's get back to Iceland. The leaders of the Icelandic Commonwealth were the so-called Gothar. The title Gothi, or Gothar in the plural, is known also from mainland Scandinavia, but we have the most details about who they were and what their functions were from Iceland. It can be worthwhile to keep in mind that it's possible that their function and status differed in other parts of Scandinavia. From the pagan era in mainland Scandinavia, the only sources for the title are runestones, one in Norway and three in Denmark. Based on the brief scribblings on runestones, you don't really get that much in-depth detail, but it does seem that the Gothar mentioned were of religious and political significance there as well. During the pagan era, the Gothi had a dual political and religious role. He wasn't merely a local chieftain, but also functioned as some kind of priest. A Hofgothi was a temple priest. This was usually a wealthy and respected man in his district, and he had the money and resources to maintain the communal hall, or Hof, where the local community would come together to celebrate religious ceremonies and feasts. Over time, and especially after the year 1000, when Iceland was Christianized, the Gothar lost their religious function, and the word became another word for chieftain. In the year 964, the number of Gothar was set to 39. All the formal political power in Iceland lay with these 39 men. And they were all men. The political function of Gothi could only be performed by a man. If a woman inherited the office, she had to leave the leadership to a man. You weren't appointed to the office of Gothi in the way that you'd be appointed to an office today. It was common to inherit the position, but it could also be bought, shared and traded. In a way that strikes most modern people as odd, the office was treated as private property, but it wasn't taxable because it was defined as power and not wealth in the Grey Goose Laws, which was the codified Icelandic law. Still, being a Gothi offered many convenient ways to enrich yourself, most of which would be characterized as blatant corruption today. During the Commonwealth era, the Gothar held key positions with regards to legislation and justice. They would organize the local spring assemblies called Vorthing, then at the National Assembly, the Althing, they met for, that met for two weeks in the summer, the Gothar were voting members of the legislative branch of the assembly, the so-called Lögretta. Later, when regional courts were introduced in Iceland, the Gothar were tasked with appointing the judges. There wasn't really any executive power in Iceland during the Commonwealth, one of the major flaws with that whole system, as it turned out. But the Gothar still had some minor executive roles. For instance, it was the local Gothi who would come around and confiscate your property if you had been declared an outlaw. A more informal, but nonetheless still a very important task that the Gothar had was to wine and dine their followers. Being a Gothi could be expensive, so you had to be a man of means if you hoped to be a successful one. But your power and influence as a Gothi was connected not only to your wealth, but also how ready you were to share it around. By holding lavish feasts, extending hospitality, giving gifts, granting loans and helping people who asked for your assistance, you as a Gothi could build your client base. And without that client base, you were nothing. 
So how did Agothi build his client base? First of all, unlike noble titles in mainland Europe, the office of Gothi wasn't limited to a specific territory. If you were a count or a duke over, over in Francia, your jurisdiction and power was limited to a clearly defined geographical area. Not so in the case of the Icelandic Gothar. Instead, Gothar in the same geographical area had to compete for the loyalty and support of the local farmers. If you were a free landowning man living in the Icelandic Commonwealth, you could choose which of the Gothar in your district you'd like to support. Interestingly enough, you could also switch from one Gothi to another if you wanted to. But you had to choose someone. You couldn't choose to remain outside of the system. Agothi's followers were known as his thingmen, literally meaning assembly people. He would help them bring cases before the court and help them enforce the decision of the court if they needed help, and they frequently did. In return, the thingmen would lend the Gothi their votes at, at the assemblies and their swords during feuds and other conflicts. So the most famous and most powerful of all the things in Iceland was the Althing. The establishment of the Althing in the year 930 was a really big deal. As its name indicates, the Althing held authority over the whole island, and the establishment of this all-island judicial and legislative body marked the end of the settlement period and the beginning of the Icelandic Commonwealth. It hadn't taken the settlers long to realize that they were going to have to organize politically in some way if they wanted to live together in an orderly fashion and not have their new society descend into chaos. But at the same time, they didn't want the tyranny of a powerful king to lord it over them, a la Harald Fairhair. So in the year 927, the leaders of the regional Hjallarnesting, incidentally established by the Gothi Thorstein Ingolfsson, son of Ingolf Arnarsson, that guy with the high seat pillars that we talked about last time, sent someone called Ulfjotl to Norway to study local law and bring back something that could be used in Iceland as well. Ulfjotr spent no less than three years in Norway, more specifically in the region under the jurisdiction of the Gula thing, and his visit to the old country bore fruit. The so-called Ulfjotr law became the basis for Icelandic law, and parts of it are even preserved in the Landnama book. While Ulfljotr was in Norway, his half-brother Grimur Geitskur was looking for a suitable spot for the new all-island thing to assemble. In the end, he chose a place called Blåskogar, but that was quickly renamed Thingvetler, or Assembly Field, on the eastern edge of the Thorstein Ingolfsson's estate. The spot was ideally located not only for the son and heir of the first official settler of Iceland, but conveniently accessible for anyone living in the most populated regions of the island. The poor Gothi, who had the longest way to travel to get to Thingvetlir, needed 17 days to get there from the easternmost part of the country. Thingvetlir is situated in a rift valley, with the Mid-Atlantic Ridge running down the middle, forming the boundary between the North American and Eurasian tectonic plates. Not that the Viking Age Icelanders knew anything about that. The theory about tectonic plates would not be generally accepted until the 1960s. But they did see the cracks in the ground, and every now and then they could feel one of the earthquakes that frequently rock the fault zone. To the south of Thingvetlir lies the largest natural lake in Iceland, Thingvatlavatn which was obviously named that after the area was chosen to be the meeting point for the Althing. 
an additional and perhaps primary reason that Grimur Gateskur decided on this exact spot was that it was available. The previous owner of the land had been found guilty of murder and as a consequence his land had been declared public property. In other words, it was up for grabs, just at the time when Grimur came around looking for a place that could offer enough space for the new assembly to get together. So, in uh, 930, the new Althing met for the very first time at Thingvetler, and it would continue to do so until 1798, when it was suspended by the King of Denmark, who preferred to reign as an absolute monarch, without the interference of pesky parliamentarians. The current Icelandic parliament is also called the Althing, and Icelanders like to claim that this present-day body represents an unbroken continuation of that Althing of thousand years ago, making their parliament the oldest continually functioning legislative assembly in the world. Unfortunately, the situation isn't quite as clear-cut as all that, but I think it's best we save the comparison between the Viking Age Althing and the 19th century assembly for a later episode. Anyway, when the Viking Age Althing met for two weeks every June at Thingvetler, this wasn't merely an important political occurrence, it was also the event of the Icelandic public calendar. A lot of people, sometimes thousands, would show up at Thingvetler for the sessions of the Althing for all the commercial and social reasons I mentioned earlier. The Althing, just like all the other Viking Age things, wasn't a democratic institution in our sense of the word, because most people were excluded from participation. Women, slaves and the landless were not allowed to join the deliberations. Only free landowning men had the right to attend. But for those free men, it was more than a right. It was expected of you to show up and support your Gothi if he needed your support. When the Althing convened, it did so at Lögberg, or Law Rock, which basically was, and still is, a rock formation where public addresses or matters of importance for all Icelanders were delivered. These included rulings made by the law council and the setting of the official calendar for the island. The law rock was also the spot where the assembly was officially opened and dissolved every year. In the year 930, when the Althing was founded, Ingolfur Arnarsson's son, Thorstein Ingolfsson, was a godi, and since his family was both rich and powerful, he became the first Alsherjar Godi, or All People Godi. As such, he had the ceremonial role of sanctifying the Althing each year, a duty that alludes to the pre-Christian religious function of the Godar. The office of Alsherjar Godi remained in Ingolfur Arnarsson's family until the end of the Icelandic Commonwealth, when the office was abolished. The actual proceedings at the Althing were overseen by its chairman, the Lögsögurmadur, or law speaker. The law speaker was elected by the Godar to serve for three years as the head of the Althing. Those chosen to be law speakers almost always came from the prominent families, because they had to command respect, so that people would accept and enforce their political decisions and legal rulings. The law speaker was expected to know the law, have experience from legal proceedings, good rhetorical skills, and knowledge of the political game. The office of law speaker wasn't limited to Iceland. In fact, it wasn't an Icelandic invention to begin with, but rather adopted from Scandinavian political culture. In other parts of Scandinavia, the law speaker was often the most powerful man in his province, and second only to the king. In Sweden, it was the law speaker at the national thing 
who led the elections of kings, because unlike Norway, Sweden didn't become a hereditary monarchy until the mid-16th century. And technically, Denmark actually remained an elective monarchy even later. Arguably, the most important job of the Icelandic law speaker was to recite the current law from the law rock during the Althing. He had to do so from memory, since the laws weren't written down. He had to recite the procedural law of the Althing itself each year, and the remaining body of laws was divided into three chunks, and the law speaker had to recite one-third every year, completing the whole thing during his three years in office. It can't have been easy on the vocal cords. In fact, one law speaker by the name of Grimr Svertingsson was ousted because his voice was too weak for everyone at the Althing to hear him proclaiming the law. And people were listening attentively. If a law speaker made a mistake or skipped a part of the law, he would be corrected by the gathered members of the Althing. Apart from running the show during the Althing and reciting the law, the law speaker had no formal power. Nonetheless, thanks to the prestige of the office and the fact that he most often belonged to a rich and influential family, the law speaker would frequently be chosen as an arbitrator in disputes. So, the odd thing that the law speaker presided over had two functions, the legislative and the judicial. And there was a strict separation between the parts of the old thing that passed laws and the part that served as a court. The part of the old thing that passed laws was called the Lögretta, or the Law Council. This was the most powerful political institution in Iceland. It was tasked with reviewing old laws and passing new ones, more or less like a modern parliament. The Lögretta was made up exclusively of the Gothar and their advisors. Each Gothi could bring two men of his choice to the council. Later, when Iceland became Christian, the bishops were also given seats on the law council. Even though most people weren't allowed to speak or vote in the law council, the meetings weren't secret. Everyone at the Althing had the right to sit in on the deliberations. The other function of the Althing was that of a court of law. Iceland was divided into 12 legal districts, each with its own regional thing. The Althing functioned as a sort of supreme court with authority over all the district courts. Legal action was brought at Lögberg, Lorock and anyone attending the Althing could present a case on important issues from the Lorock. In the 960s, Iceland was divided up into four administrative quarters, west, north, east and south, with three legal districts in each quarter. Every quarter was led by nine Gothar, three per district. At the Althing, a court made up of 36 judges was established for each quarter. Each Gothi appointed one judge of his choice to sit on these quarter courts. The quarter courts tried individual cases and served as a court of appeals for the district courts. The rulings of the quarter judges didn't have to be unanimous, but it was enough that six of the 36 judges disagreed for the case to be dismissed because no ruling could be passed. Such a rule, although well intended, had the unfortunate but not entirely unforeseeable consequence that the quarter courts could be manipulated into stalemate by people who weren't interested in a ruling. In the year 1005, this problem was solved by the creation of a fifth court, an appeals court for the quarter courts. It was made up of 48 judges appointed by the Gothar of the Law Council. To make a ruling, this fifth court only needed a simple majority. So in Iceland, the Gothar would assign a jury to adjudicate the case. In contrast, in Denmark and Sweden, 
each side in the case elected half each of the members of the jury. In Norway, at least from the 13th century onward, the law speaker was the one to choose the jury. Interestingly enough, the jury didn't necessarily look only to evidence, but just as much to the character of the involved parties. One way to prove your innocence was to gather a number of character witnesses, usually 6, 12 or 24, who would swear that you'd never do something like the thing you were accused of. I don't think that it will shock anyone to learn that it was a lot easier to find character witnesses willing to testify in your defense if you had lots of money and influence. If the accused was considered an honorable and upstanding member of the community, it would be very hard indeed to get him convicted. Unpopular or weak people, not to mention strangers, stood little chance of seeing justice being served. The system of having the law speaker recite the law orally at the Althing held sway for over 200 years. But in the year 1117, the Althing decided to, pre uh, to produce a written copy. The work was carried out over the winter, and the result was made public the following year. For reasons unknown to me, this collection of laws became known as the Grey Goose Laws. In other parts of Scandinavia, we see a similar trend. Orally transmittal laws had been the norm for a long time, but with time, thing after thing started to have their laws written down. This always happened after Christianization, but it's unclear to what extent the change of religions played a part in this process. It could just be a coincidence, or a sign of increasing continental European cultural influence on Scandinavia. It's also tricky to say to what extent the Grey Goose laws reflected the laws of the earlier Icelandic Commonwealth. But thanks to this effort to write down the laws, we have a pretty good idea of what the Icelandic laws looked like from the early 12th century onward. The Grey Goose laws remained in force until Iceland lost its independence in the middle of the 14th century. So, what kind of penalties were meted out in the Icelandic Commonwealth? To begin with, the severity of the punishment was connected to whether or not you had manned up and admitted what you had done, or if you had tried to hide it. Confessions were very important. For example, if you killed your own slave, it wasn't a crime unless you tried to hide it. If you immediately confessed, it was okay. No harm done to anything but property. But crimes committed in secret were considered especially shameful and heinous, and so theft could be punished harsher than manslaughter. Today, when we think of penalties, we usually think of serving time in prison, but incarceration was not a thing in Viking Age Scandinavia. Corporal punishments were also rare, and they were reserved almost exclusively for slaves. As a rule of thumb, slaves were always punished harsher than free men, and the punishments given to slaves were often draconian, even for relatively minor crimes. They could, for instance, have their noses or ears cut off. It would also seem that the ultimate corporal punishment, the death sentence, was reserved for slaves only. Free men were not executed, but turned into outlaws. If you were declared an outlaw, you lost all your legal rights, as well as your property. It was allowed to kill an outlaw at sight, and even illegal to protect them. In Denmark and Sweden, the outlaw status was only valid in the legal province where the sentence had been handed down. So you could cross the border into another legal province and be safe. In Norway, on the other hand, outlawry was valid all through the kingdom. In Iceland, similar to Norway, outlawry was valid for the whole commonwealth, which meant that you had to leave the island if you wanted to save your life. 
Your outlaw status could be temporary, and then you'd be allowed back after three years. But it could also be permanent, and then you'd have to stay away for the, for the rest of your life. But outlawry was reserved for the most severe cases. Fines were the most common punishment by far. And the worse the crime, the higher the fine you had to pay would be. The Icelandic laws go into quite a lot of detail about how much you were supposed to pay for any particular crime, and the sagas also contain a fair share of discussion about who paid how much for what. One important feature in the Icelandic system of government was that it completely lacked any kind of central executive power. That meant that even though a court ruled in your favor, it had no executive authority to carry out the sentence. Instead, it was up to the claimant and his clan to enforce the court's decision. Since intra-clan conflicts were common, it was important to have a broad network of friends or clients to help you enforce court decisions in your favor. If you didn't have a good network, you typically didn't stand a chance. The powerless had one recourse, and that was to sell their court-decreed claims for compensation to someone who actually had the power to collect it, usually a gothi. That way, the poor and friendless also stood at least a chance to attain justice, even though they might have to pay a gothi a fee for his trouble. If you were too poor to pay your fine, there could be a negotiation about a fine reduction or forced labor instead, basically turning yourself into a slave temporarily until you'd paid off your crime. Or you could ask your family or clan to help pay the fine. It would be in their interest to do so, since legally the whole family was collectively responsible to compensate for your crime. And uh, if you failed to meet your legal obligations, the aggrieved party had the right to exact his revenge on any one of your family members, not only you. This collective responsibility, in combination with a lack of any kind of public law enforcement whatsoever, gave rise to feuds. If uh, someone had killed a relative of yours, the most honorable thing to do was to kill the killer, or a member of his family. Accepting a fine was often seen as less honorable. Besides, since there were no authorities to enforce compliance, you had had to have the muscle to get the fine anyway, and a lot of people prefer to use that muscle to kill the perpetrator. Honor demanded that you should be able to defend yourself and your family and property. If you didn't enforce your rights or seek revenge for crimes committed against you and your family, you lost your honor and were seen as a weak and an open target for others to take advantage of as well. Conversely, if you were successful in getting revenge, that meant you were an honorable man that others would think twice about messing with, at least in theory. Sometimes a revenge killing would lead to yet another revenge killing against the family that carried out the first revenge killing, and hey presto, a feud would ensue between two families or clans. These were allowed, but heavily regulated. You couldn't just go around and kill anyone you didn't like, or you thought had done you wrong. There was an honor code and strict rules to feuds and vengeance. There was such a crime as a feud crime, meaning breaking the laws stipulating where and when you could kill someone as a part of a feud. For instance, you weren't allowed to fight at the thing or a holy place, neither on the way to or from it. Usually you were also forbidden to attack someone at home or at a feast when they were relieving themselves washed, or if they were on board a ship or a boat. 
That doesn't leave too many options, so it's not all that surprising that feuds could last for years. You'd have to wait around for ages for someone to be in a position where you were allowed to attack and kill them. In the meantime, the conflict had time to fester and poison everyone's lives. And even if you had the chance, it wasn't considered proper to exact revenge immediately. Best wait a while. An Icelandic saga stated that revenge is greater the longer it's postponed. But obviously there was a limit after which you were considered not to be the avenging type, and thus an open target for ridicule and or abuse. This custom of feuds and revenges, in lieu of a robust central government, with the power and authority to enforce decisions made by the legal system, may strike you as a bad idea. Maybe even as a recipe for perpetual societal instability and civil unrest. If so, you wouldn't be wrong. But it took a while for Scandinavian society to develop such a government, capable of taking over the business of meeting out punishments from the citizenry. Private feuding survived in all of Scandinavia, not only in Iceland, throughout the Viking Age, and it wasn't until the 13th century that the kings of Sweden and Norway managed to gradually eradicate the practice. In Denmark, where the nobility was strong and the royal power was weak for a longer time, aristocrats retained the legal right to engage in armed feuds until the year 1683. In Iceland, the future of the Commonwealth rested on the hope and assumption that the Icelanders themselves would honour the laws and rein in their most destructive impulses for the benefit of the collective. It didn't really turn out that way. But I don't think we can blame the collapse of the Commonwealth on the way the Icelanders had decided to govern themselves. At least it wasn't the only factor. We'll get into the details of that sad tale of greed, corruption and violence in a future episode. But next time, we'll have a look at something else. Something that, for the longest time, was just a theory, a rumour, hotly contested by some scholars, especially in Spain. I refer, of course, to the Scandinavian discovery of America, hundreds of years before Christopher Columbus was even born. I hope you'll join me then.